Morning Liberty. Well, hello there, everybody. My name is Nate, and this is Good Morning Liberty. Thank you for being here today. If this is your first day, please subscribe to the podcast. There is a button somewhere around your finger right now that says subscribe. If you hit that button, it will help us get this podcast directly out to you every single day because we do release a new podcast every day of the week, even on weeks like this week where both Charlie and I are out of town. But I have gone and pre-recorded a bunch of episodes, so we're still getting you a podcast every day this week. What I wanted to do today was to take you through this presentation that Charlie and I are going to be giving at the Young Americans for Liberty Conference in Detroit. It's going to be at the end of September. I don't really know if it'll be September when you're hearing this, but anyway, the last weekend of September, we're going to be giving this presentation. And the idea of the presentation is the psychology that goes behind our political conversations that we have. We're going to be tailoring this specifically to libertarians like ourselves. So the presentation is called The Psychology of a Libertarian, and it's going to be talking about why libertarianism, and if you're not a libertarian, you can just use this as a liberty-minded person, why that's viewed as a selfish political ideology, when in fact it is the most compassionate political ideology that there is. So we'll be taking, through, uh, taking everyone through some of the points that we have on this. Now, here at the Good Morning Liberty podcast or goodmorningliberty.us, we like to let everyone know that we believe that free market capitalism is the best way to continue lifting those who are impoverished out of poverty. So, even though it might be well-intended, the government is not an effective entity that can allocate resources properly. They are not good at this. They are not good at taking money from you and then putting that money to its highest and best use. The best thing for this is the free market, as we've seen time and time again, all throughout history, like we're going to talk about later today. So our goal is to disprove this idea of planned economics, socialism, communism, even what we have right now. And what we want to do is support individual liberty, and we want to promote the return to a true free market system because we like to say that we're in the free market right now. But in all actuality, we're, we're really not operating in a free market. There are some markets that are very free. A lot of things, a lot of internet-based businesses are pretty free. You know, Uber and Lyft, rideshare companies like that, you, you can kind of see those as pretty free market companies. But then even those are dealing with tons of regulations. So there's really nothing that we deal with on a daily basis that is not in some way affected by some form of government regulation. And that, by its very nature, is not a free market at all. As long as you are forced to stay within the bounds of whoever the politician is that's in control at that point in time, or whoever's running whatever bureaucracy, whether it's in the EPA or the FDA or whatever it is, any of those acronyms, anyone who is in those that can control your business, well, you're not really in a free market. 
anymore. So I just wanted to go over what our goal is and what I think a lot of you listening, what your goal is or what it should be. So we have to talk about when we're imagining these conversations that we have with people. You know, a lot of people go online and we have these little spats back and forth on Facebook or on Twitter or Instagram, whatever it is, however you're talking. You go on there and you have this little argument back and forth with someone. It probably never gets anywhere. You know, a lot of times in a debate, really all that happens is people just get more entrenched in their original beliefs. You very rarely get someone to move over to your side. So a lot of times what we've seen now is really no one's trying to get people over to their side anymore. It's just turning to, you know, you see on online now, it's the ideology, the idea behind all of these debates are this is going to be a war. That's that's kind of what we're seeing right now. If you don't believe what I believe, well, then this is going to be a war. And we, we want to get away from that. We want to try to stop that from happening. So we like to think about, you know, the main idea behind every single conversation that we have online. What is the purpose of talking to someone about this, if not to try to bring them over to your way of thinking? So we've been taking some time to try to dissect the psychology behind these arguments. But anytime that you're going to stick your neck out there to put a bunch of time towards something like what we're doing here, where we put a ton of time into this program every single day, it's a it's a full-time job running this website and this podcast. So anytime you're going to put this much work into something or you're going to spend a lot of time and you really care about something, you've got to have some kind of a, a basis, a why behind. Why are you doing this? Why do you care about this? Why are we even talking about this right now? So good quote for that is from Frederick Nietzsche who said, Frederick Nietzsche, who said, he who has a why can bear almost any how. And that's a very, very powerful quote because it means if your why is strong enough, then yeah, it might be hard. This might be tough. You might be banging your head up against a brick wall every time you're talking to someone. But if that why is strong enough, then you can make it through it. You need to find a way to figure this out, to get to your goal. And the goal should be that we're all able to live on the same dirt together without without going to a war with each other, which is what it, which is what it sadly looks like we're heading to right now. So when you think about the why, you know, why do we take all this time every single day talking about politics? It's not really, you know, is it really affecting your daily life every single day? Is it the most important thing? Well, in some ways, no, not really, but in other ways, it really is because we're all consumers. None of us, let's say none of us, most of us are not making our own clothing. We're not growing our own food. We're not making our own electricity. We're not gathering our own water and bringing it to our house. We didn't make our own car. We didn't build those roads. So really, this is important and it does affect your everyday life. So Let's talk about the why for a minute, because what is the state of our country right now, the financial state? It's not that great, and it's, this is really important to realize, because right now our current, our budget deficit, now the, 
the deficit and the debt are two very different things. They get confused all the time. So our deficit, the amount of money that we are going to spend versus the amount of money that we're going to take in, we are at a deficit of $1.1 trillion this year. $1.1 trillion. Now the current national debt, meaning all those deficits over time that have added up to the amount of debt that we have right now, is 22 Point three trillion dollars, and it's going up and up really fast. Go look at the, uh, I think it's the National Debt Clock uh, or the U.S. Debt Clock. Go look that up, and uh, they've got it real time for you. It's pretty disgusting to sit there and watch it. Tell you the truth. So then we have these things called unfunded liabilities. This is different from the debt. This is money that we've promised to people. This is money that we've said we're going to pay you, whether it's pensions or healthcare or social security, anything like that, that we've said currently, hey, we're going to pay for this for you for the rest of your life. Now, currently, that amount is underfunded by $220 trillion, $220 trillion, and going up rapidly. Social security itself is underfunded by $13 trillion. I believe it's a 2036. We're going to be hitting the point where there's no money left for Social Security anymore. You know, I'm not going to get Social Security. I'm I'm 32. Um, by the time I reach whatever the age is, 62, 65, I'm not going to get Social Security. Uh, I I know that. So we'll have to find something other than that. And then our current interest on the debt. Now, this is just because we keep taking out more and more debt. We keep borrowing that money we have to pay an interest rate on the money that we're borrowing. So currently, the interest on the debt itself is $500 billion. Now, they're actually projecting that by the year 2025, the amount of interest on the debt will be more than we spend on the military every year. So it, it's going to be, it's really hard to turn this around, but I think it's important that we remember this as part of our why, because when we, get on, when we get online and we get in these nasty conversations or we're talking with someone that we just think is never going to hear our side of it, you got to remember this, this why. And it's not because you hate the person that you're talking to. And it's not because you hate the politicians that are running for office. It's these things in the background that are, that are the reason that you feel the need to have this conversation. You have to, you have to remember that. So all those trillions of dollars I just mentioned... We have to think about how big is a trillion. A trillion is a really big number. And I think a a lot of people, we've heard these numbers thrown around for so long, for our whole lives, and we don't really think about how big that number is. So in relation, we'll go through a thousand, a million, a billion, and a trillion here. And we're just going to do it instead of dollars, we're going to do it in inches. So, a thousand inches can get you about 83 feet away from where you are right now. About 83 feet. That might not even get you out to your mailbox. It probably won't. If you're in an apartment, it probably won't get you away from your apartment building. Just a thousand inches. So, a million inches can't be that much bigger, right? Well, a million inches, that'll actually get you 15 miles 
Now that's that'll get you a lot. That might get me from where I'm at right now into the center of downtown Nashville. You know, that might get you to Target from wherever you are. I don't know. So a million inches already. We're going 15 miles versus a thousand that was taking us 83 feet. Now a billion inches. Now we're talking some real distance. That's actually 15,782 miles, a billion inches. In reference, that's about 60% of the way around our planet. A billion inches. Think about how big an inch is. Now a trillion. Now this is crazy. Remember a billion was going to take you about 60% around our planet. Now a trillion is actually going to take you 15,782,000 miles, a trillion inches. That's like going to the moon and back 33 times. That's 1 trillion inches. So that's how big these numbers are. And remember that our, under, our unfunded liabilities are right around $220 trillion dollars. It's a lot. So this money has got to be made up in some kind of way. The budget cannot continue these massive deficits. We cannot continue piling on this debt. We'll talk about why in a few minutes. But what are we going to do to fix this? Because something will have to be done to fix it at some point in time. So they really only have a couple options. They're going to have to raise taxes a lot or and or they're going to have to print a lot of money. So they'll have to raise taxes, or they'll have to print a lot of money. Now, neither one of those are good. I mean, just with taxes. What do we know about taxation in its, in its own? You know, you can say it with me, actually. Taxation is very detrimental to the growth of an economy due to the fact that the allocation of scarce resources is rarely managed efficiently. This leads to a reduction in production, reduction in jobs, freedom, and the eventual mass starvation of millions of people. I know that's what you were thinking too. Um, also, taxation is theft. That is, that is the other answer for that. So the other option that we have, other than raising taxes, which is something that will have to happen, is they're going to have to print money. Now, they don't actually print money. That's just kind of something that we say. Really, they just type it into a computer. It's not really printing physical money anymore. But how has that gone throughout history? We've got some pretty good examples of how it, how it goes when this happens throughout history. You know, in the Russian Revolution in the early 1900s, they had a big debt that they were trying to take care of. And what they did, they printed a bunch of money at one point in time, it was better just to burn money to stay warm in Russia. That was the best use of the money rather than using that money to buy some kind of resource to stay, to stay warm. So think about in early Russia, we had this group of people called the Kulaks. You might not have heard about them before. Maybe some of you have. So a Kulak was really just a name for a wealthy peasant in Russia. And what they meant was someone who was wealthy enough to hire labor. At first, it was the farmers because they were the people that were hiring labor. 
And you got to think back on the early 1900s, farming, a lot bigger thing for a lot more people at that point in time. So really, if you were a farmer that had a couple more cows or five or six acres more than your neighbor, then you were a kulak. So when you think about Marxism and Leninism, these kulaks were really, they were known as the class enemies. You know, they, they separated everything into economic classes, the rich and the poor, kind of like how we do right now. So the kulaks were class enemies of, of everyone else. So even Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, described those people as bloodsuckers, vampires, plunderers of the people, and profiteers who fatten on famine. That was a quote from Lenin. So this was the kind of rhetoric that was going around at that time. This, you can stop me if you've ever heard this, but this rhetoric that was going around was that these people who hired out their labor, um, who have more than other people, were class enemies of the poor and that they were just uh, bloodsuckers and vampires and people who plundered on uh, famine, fattened on famine. So... I don't know. It kind of seems like something that we hear about today sometimes. So we had this class warfare going on in Russia. So there was actually a directive in 1918 came from Lenin that said to hang no fewer than 100 kulaks, rich men. And then he went through his bloodsuckers again to hang those people and do it in such a way that for hundreds of kilometers around, the people will see, tremble, no shout. They are strangling and will strangle to death the bloodsucker kulaks. So that was that was kind of the order in 1918. So then in 1929, the Soviet government issued a decree that defined anyone, any of these people as a kulak. Because remember, they started off with one group of people at first. It was really the farmers. And that's who they pinpointed as it was their fault that we were in these terrible times. So that wasn't really working, so they had to widen that out. So now in 1929, they defined any of these people as kulaks. It was anyone who used hired labor. If you made money in some kind of a way that did not come from your own personal labor, if you owned a mill, a creamery, processing equipment, any kind of complex machine with a motor. So if you were doing any kind of systematic renting out of agriculture equipment or facilities... If you were involved in trade, money lending, commercial brokerages, any kind of source of non-labor income, then you were, you were then called a kulak. So a year later, after they had kind of widened out those parameters, they finally said that it was time to dissolve the kulaks as a class. So those categories were distinguished the first were sent to the gulags, the second were relocated to distant provinces, and the third to other areas within their own province. So at this point in time, they socialize all the farms. Any, any crop that comes in is confiscated by the, by the Soviet government, and then they redistribute that out to the people. So, and they had to get rid of these people that had their own farms that were able to grow the food and then sell it to people. So they had to take over those people. Those were, that was the industry that they had to take over. Those were the people that were doing the best in society, those farmers. And at one point in time, so in this time, kind of early 1930s, they would go around and they would conduct random searches of people's farms or people's houses. And if they saw, this is how, this is how bad it was. 
if you didn't look like you were starving, then they would suspect you of hiding food somewhere and they would start to search your property for food. That's how they knew that you were maybe holding some back because everyone else looked like they were starving. So they had to go to all these people and they had to make sure everyone was giving in their food because they had to redistribute it evenly between all the people. So by this time, the people, they were starving. Some of these quotes that say they had swollen faces and legs and stomachs. They couldn't contain their own urine. And by now, they were eating anything. They caught mice, rats, sparrows, ants, earthworms. They ground up bones, leather, and shoe soles to make flour to cook with. I mean, it was getting, it was getting pretty bad. So what was the... What was the end result of this? So around 1.3 million kulaks were executed during that time. And then here's the really crazy part. Given the fact that the kulaks were the successful farmers, they were the people who were the best at growing the food, right after they did this, the Soviet, they went into a famine right afterwards where 6 million people starved to death afterwards. They created a hatred so strong for people who had more than them that they talked those people into killing the people that grew their food. That's, that's how bad it was. And so they had to have the neighbors, the friends, people in the towns had to go around and round up these kulaks, round up these people who were evil, these evil, evil one percenters, the people who were hiring out labor. And... Just one of the quotes from one of the people in town, because they knew the people that, that they were rounding up and killing. He said, it was excruciating to see and hear all of this, and even worse, to take part in it. And this is what he said. He said, I, I persuaded myself, explained to myself, I mustn't give in to debilitating pity. We were realizing historical necessity. We were performing our revolutionary duty. We were obtaining grain for the socialist fatherland. This is how bad this was. So that's the kulaks in Russia. Pretty, pretty simple. Hatred for those who have more than you eventually led to the government taking over those industries and redistributing all of the wealth from those industries. And that's what, that's what happened afterwards. That was a result of printing too much money, of killing the currency of killing the industry, of overtaxing the people, and then they had the result to that. So then we also had the Weimar Republic. The Weimar Republic is was Germany before World War II. That's what it was called for after between World War I and World War II. It was called the Weimar Republic. So at that point in time, they were going they were hit hard by World War I, and they started printing their own money because they were not able to repay their debts from World War I. So since they started printing their own money, the uh, the rate of inflation was actually 466 billion percent. 466 billion percent inflation from 1920 to 1923. Prices on items at first were doubling every single day. That's That's how fast it was. So at the end of that, for 25 U.S. dollars, it would have taken 100 trillion marks for 25 U.S. dollars. 
there was actually a story of someone going into a coffee shop. You went into the coffee shop and the sign said it was 5,000 marks for a cup of coffee. 5,000. So if you sat there and you drank two cups of coffee, at the end of it, you got a bill for 14,000 marks. Why was that? 5,000 plus 5,000 would be 10,000. Well, the reason was in the time that it took you to drink two cups of coffee, the price of a cup of coffee actually went from 5,000 to 7,000 marks. It increased by 40% while you were sitting there drinking the coffee. So when you look at the Holocaust that came after Hitler came to power, what did they do when all of this ha- when all of this happened? When people when people's entire life savings was no longer enough to buy a loaf of bread at the grocery store, how did Hitler get the public to go along with what he was doing? He did what other people have done throughout history. He found a common enemy. He found people that he found someone that everyone could hate. So he blamed the bankers, the doctors the business owners, and the lawyers for all the people's troubles. He found the people that everyone could agree to hate. Now, it just so happened to be that the class of people, the group of people that were disproportionately represented in those groups were Jewish, and that was how he was able to do what he did. So we have to think about the why. All of that is just in, in this whole why. When we get into a conversation with someone, why is it that we have why is it that we have to win this argument? Why are we taking why are we taking part in the argument in the first place? It's because of for me, it's because of reasons like that. You know, people don't think that all of this kind of history can repeat itself, but uh, history normally does repeat itself. It might not be exactly the same, sometimes it's worse. So my why is because this mentality, which is the hatred for those who have more than you. That mentality has killed millions of people in the past. And my why, it's really because capitalism has saved what is really an unmeasurable amount of people. Millions of people. Billions of people. So we have our why. And now it's important to think about the how. So when you're talking to someone online, like I said earlier, sometimes you can feel like you're just banging your head up against a, a brick wall. You're not getting anywhere. So I've found that you have to tailor your debate to the person that you're talking to. You have to, you have to fit an ideology. You have to talk in an ideology that fits normal personality types. Now, especially if you're a libertarian listening to this, um, I don't think that the personality type that most libertarians would fall into is a very normal personality type. But the problem is the way that we talk to people, we talk as if we can convince them to fit our personality. When we see the, we see things from our angle all the time and they make sense to us in our head, but really that's just not how other people think about things. So you have to speak in a language that your audience is going to be able to understand. Generally, now this is really tough, You've got to try to be non-combative and agreeable. Have you ever tried to have an argument with someone close to you um, and you started off by, you're an idiot and a terrible person, I hate you. And then try to come, you know, then try to fix the situation after that. What do you think the best result would be if you started off like that or you're like, hey, I understand 
that these things are going, yeah, you're right. That, that is an issue. And I'm sorry that that's making you feel the way it's feeling. And, and, um, I understand that, you know, so let's, let's try to figure out where we went wrong here because we're on the same team, you know, which one of those do you think would really work all that well? So in thinking about this, I was trying to come up with this presentation. I was trying to think about how we're going to talk to these people at the Young Americans for Liberty Convention. And I had a friend ask me, a friend from back home ask me, um, what my, if I knew what my personality type was, if I knew what my Myers-Briggs personality type was. So some of you might not know what that is. If you've ever seen anyone talk in these letters like ENTP, INTP, ESTJ, all these different these four-letter acronyms for personality types. So this person was asking me what my personality type was because they were like, hey, you know, I, I think I'd be able to communicate better with you if you would tell me what your personality type is. And that way I would know how to approach the argument. So then like this light bulb went off in my head. I was like, wait, that's that's brilliant. You want to know what my personality type is? That way... That way you'll know how to approach a conversation with me so I'll most understand what you're talking about. That's brilliant. So that's what I think we need to be doing when we're having these political conversations. There's all these different personality types. And you can go to, I think it's 16personalities.com and take a short, it's like a five-minute test. And it'll give you a pretty pretty good idea of what your personality type is. So there's these four letters that represent in different combinations, 16 different personalities. And in each of those, um, Charlie, the other person, the co-host of the Good Morning Liberty podcast, who's not here today, Charlie comes through as an ENTP. Those are his letters. And that's nicknamed the debater. And as someone throughout history, they like to give you a, an idea of someone throughout history and who that would align with. So for Charlie, they give Benjamin Franklin as for who he aligns with. And then I come through as a INTP, or the thinker, is what it says. And so someone throughout history that that aligns with is is uh, Albert Einstein. So trust me, um, only just in your personality, not the things that you know, because he was obviously very, very well read in all of the subjects. So we go through all these different personality types. There's these different letters for each one of them. I, I recommend you going and seeing what type you are. It could actually help you in your relationships that you have with friends, your family, your loved ones. And it, yes, I do think it would help when you're talking to people online. So there's these different letters, and there's a couple common ones that come through all the time. And the second letter, you can either have an S or an N. So that stands for sensory or intuitive. Or then on on the third letter, you can have a T or an F, and that stands for thinking versus feeling. So on mine and Charlie's personality types, we don't have an S or an F, meaning the sensory or feeling. We have an N and a T, which is intuition and thinking. So that that personality type represents like 3% of the people in the U.S., and then of people who of people who actually have the S and the F, that's the the feeling or the sensing, of those people, those make up ninety percent of the US. So I was looking at these personality types and I was trying to think, man, why why is it that we just can't get through to people? Why are politics 
why are politics going the way that they are right now? Why are these conversations just seem to not really make much sense? And we're not really talking about real solutions. We're talking about how things make us feel, or we're talking about, okay, there's gun violence, therefore you ban guns and they're gone. And and the, that's just kind of how these personality types actually run. You can see the sensory versus intuition. Uh, sensory, they like matter of fact, things right in front of you, uh, cause and effect that is easy to see, uh, black and white things right there in front of you, where the intuitive people like these big, broad theories and these ideas of what might or might not might or might not happen are these all these kinds of different possibilities in the big picture. So most of the people line up with the first one, the very cause and effect, black and white. Here's yes or no. There we go. And then we have the thinking versus the feeling. So you have people who make their decisions, whether using logical analysis objectively weighing pros and cons, or you have people who are sensitive to people's feelings, who are very subjective, who make their, who make their decisions based on what feels right. So you can go thinking would be, would be firm, fair, and rational. Feeling would be caring and passionate and emotional. Uh, Thinking would be people that value truth and logic, or feeling would be, they'd be valuing tact and diplomacy, or thinking would be uh, driven by dispassionate objectivity, or feeling would be driven by passionate subjectivity. So those are really important to realize. And what you can, when you look into these personality types, you can really figure out how to talk to other people. <coughs> Excuse me. So our mission, our mission, is to find a way. We have to find a way to communicate in a way that speaks to other people, plain and simple, not just our personality, not just mine, which is the thinking and the intuitive, which is like 2.8% of the country. The other 90% of the country uses this sensory and feeling. I have to look up ways to discuss arguments in a way that they will understand what I'm talking about, that, that it will play to their line of thinking. I can't I can't convince them to have my personality type. You can't do that. So we have to construct our arguments in a way that those people will understand. Think about this philosophical situation here. So just a just a random situation. Let's see how you would feel about this. There's a single mother of four children, and she's about to be evicted from a home in your neighborhood. Now, you're already barely getting by. You're barely making your bills. You don't have any money left over at the end of the day or at the end of the month. So you can't really help. But down the street, there's this really rich guy. And he's just got several baskets of unused money just sitting around on his lawn and his front porch. They're just sitting there. No one's using them. He's not using them. They're just sitting there. You know, who cares? So someone comes up to you and says, hey, that single mother of four is about to be evicted from her house, and that guy's got a bunch of money just sitting there. And hes it's obviously no one's putting it to good use. How about I go over there, and I'll take a few dollars out of that guy's basket, and then we'll make sure that that mom and her four kids have somewhere to sleep tonight. How about that? So you have to ask yourself, would you condone that action? Would you say that that is okay? Now, maybe a lot of people listening to this podcast would say, no, that's not okay. But I believe 
that the bulk of the country would say, yes, that is moral, that is morally justified theft at that point in time because he wasn't using it and this person needs it. So our problem is that that's how people view the government. At the end of the day, that's what they see. No matter what all of the corruptions there might be, what all the problems there might be, at the end of the day, they think that if it weren't for the government, that that mom and her four kids would have nowhere to go and they'd be sleeping on the street. And that's what they see as their way of helping those people. They see that getting that money from the person who has too much and giving it to the person who doesn't have anything is morally justified. So we have to find a way to get away, get around that moral justification. And when you're making arguments about this, you got to be careful because there's a lot of arguments that won't work. A lot of arguments that are not going to work at all. Here's a few arguments that will not work no matter how much you like them or whether or not they're true. Poor people are lazy. They just want to do nothing and live off of your money. That's not a good argument. That is not an argument that you can ever win any kind of debate with online. You might as well not say it. It's only going to make you look worse. It's only going to make you look bad if you got there and say that. If your objective is to convert people over to your way of thinking, don't make that argument. It does not work. Or you made your bed, now lay in it. You know, your mistakes are your mistakes, so now you got to get out of your own self-created hole. Now, that's true. It's, it's, it's pretty true. But once again, that argument's not going to take you anywhere if you're actually trying to create some kind of change with people, if you actually want people to listen to what you're saying. That argument's not going to get you anywhere. Here's another one that's not going to get you anywhere, and I'm guilty of this one. Taxation is theft. Now, extremely true. Very, very true. Black and white, easy, true. Terrible argument that is never going to win anyone over at all. If your actual goal is to win some kind of an argument, is to convert people over to your way of thinking so we can somehow get out of this mess, then don't rely on taxation as theft. Because what that does is this creates a view of anarchism where there's no government and then and then eventually people just get scared of that. It's not going to lead you anywhere that you want to be at all. So when we're giving these arguments, we have to realize the person you're talking to, the person you're talking to online, you got to realize that we all want the same thing at the end of the day. We all want the same thing for sure. Everyone, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, socialists, libertarians, communists, fascists, everyone wants the same exact thing. That thing is security. That's simple as that. That might sound ridiculous, but it's security. I know that a famous quote, I believe Benjamin Franklin said that those who sacrifice liberty for security deserve neither. That's not just like national defense security or anything like that. That's financial security, your physical security, security in yourself, your well-being, security for your family, for the financial and physical, yourself to be secure. And the most important thing is your children. And people on both sides 
of the political ideologies are on all sides of these ideologies. They all really want the same thing. They're making these arguments. I know a lot of people want to see that, oh, they just want to burn the whole thing down and send us in the chaos. They just want to control everyone and destroy your lives. I don't think that's the case at all. Maybe that's the case of a very select few powerful people. But your average everyday person arguing for Bernie Sanders to be the president, that's not their goal. They don't want they don't want the whole world to burn down and our economy to crash and for everyone to starve to death. That's not what they want. They think that they are arguing for the only realistic vision for their children to have a better life than they did. That's exactly what they think they're arguing for. So we've got to make these arguments. We've got to say if you care about the poor, if you care about the future of your children, do more of what has worked in the past, not more of what hasn't. Some of that stuff we talked about earlier. The best way to help the most amount of people is through the free exchange of value, things that we deem valuable for things that the other person deems valuable. That's what capitalism is. It is too dangerous to rely on the government to provide for those things that we all need in our society. It does a bad job at nearly everything that doesn't involve blowing things up. Its inefficiency has led to the deaths of millions in the past. That's not our government, but the general idea of governments controlling everything. So there was this there was this tweet or this post on Instagram from the Libertarian Party last week that I really like. It's a really great example of what I'm talking about here. So we need to, instead of being people that are anti every single policy that's thrown out there, oh, that's stupid. Your policy is bad. You know, that policy is bad. That's not a good, that's not a good thing because people want to hear some kind of solution. So don't just be anti everything. Be pro things. This is from the Libertarian Party. They said, I don't oppose expanding access to affordable health care. I don't oppose quality education for children. I don't oppose making college more affordable. I don't oppose protecting the environment. I simply believe that government is the worst institution to accomplish these goals. That is the whole idea right there. You're for all of these things. So we got to flip the script. Here's the current narrative. People are hurting. They are unable to pay their bills or pursue their aspirations, falling further and further behind day after day. These big corporations have us by the neck, and they care nothing about the plight of the ordinary individual. To fix this, we must use the government to bring equality to the masses. If you oppose this, you are selfish, greedy, and dangerous. That's the current narrative that's out there. That's the overarching narrative for all of our conversations. So let's flip that. We got to flip that script. Here's the new narrative. People are hurting. They are unable to pay their bills or pursue their aspirations, falling further and further behind day after day. Yes, the rich are getting richer, but the poor are enjoying a higher standard of living as a result. The government can be used to ensure there are no artificial barriers placed in the way of the ordinary individual. It may seem like you are helping those in need by instituting new policies, but in reality, you are not. The government is inefficient and unpredictable. The free market is the fastest and most effective way of alleviating poverty. We are proposing an actual solution to the world's problems. Those who do not support individual liberty are in fact hurting those people 
that they aim to help. You got to flip the script over to that. You got to give an argument that kind of puts an idea in someone's head. Just like, don't, don't get them all the way to the finish line because that's not going to happen in a conversation. No one likes to admit that they're wrong ever. Just put a little idea in their head. So how about this? You don't fear Donald Trump. You fear the power he has. Is it a good long-term plan to leave health care, education, transportation, economics, or climate change in the hands of people like Donald Trump? So if you're talking to a liberal, well, they, do they think that? Do you want to give all those industries, all that power, all those industries, you want to give that to the next president that you despise? You really think that the president should have control over every single one of those things? Can you even tell me that the person who is in power, that you're always going to support them? Because that's what you're saying. You're saying every single part of our life that the government needs to have a hand in it. You don't even know who the next person that's going to be in control of the government is. Leave it at that. Don't try to force them all the way through. No one likes to admit that they're wrong, ever. So we have got to be the people who are proposing solutions. Because here's the problem. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things wrong in our society. People are poor. College is too expensive. Healthcare is too expensive. Okay? Some people are getting rich and a lot of people aren't able to move up. Now, a lot of people are, but all those things are actually happening. What they're listening to are the only people that are proposing some kind of a solution that sounds easy enough to follow. Bernie Sanders is out there saying, I will take money from that person and then I will give it to you and everything will be fine. That's easy. Bernie Sanders' policies are easy enough that he can say them in, a, in one tweet. His whole ideology, he can get it out in one tweet. 160 characters, whatever it is right now. We've got to find a way to propose actual solutions to all of these problems. Solutions that are simple enough that we can say them quickly and that we can actually get people to think about them. So we have to stop just being anti-everything. And instead, we've got to be we got to be pro something, and no pro anti everything does not count as being pro something. So we got to retake the moral high ground, guys. That's what I'm talking about. The people on the left, they're talking like they've got they've got this massive moral high ground. They're the ones that are going to help all the poor. They're the ones that are going to stop climate change, or they're going to give people health care, all this stuff. So they're like the high moral people and we're all just the lowly, terrible, selfish ingrates that, that are just disgusting and shouldn't be here anymore. But they've taken that high ground. We've got to retake it. The way that we, we retake it is by realizing that why from earlier in our talk, remember what's happened in the past, those kind of things can actually happen again. Now, it might be a little different this time, but these economic catastrophes can happen again. History can repeat itself. So the people like us who are actually proposing real solutions that have an actual chance of fixing some of these problems, we are on the moral high ground, not the people on the left that are proposing that we take money from some people and give it to others. They are not on the moral high ground at all. And it's high time we stop letting them act like they are. We have to retake 
the moral high ground. We've got to go out to people and say, if you care about kids wanting more affordable college, if you care about people wanting more affordable housing, if you care about people that want higher paying jobs or affordable health care, then you need to listen to what I have to say because this is the only way to fix that. And those other people that are out there saying that they're just going to give you a check every single month, those people are not the people in the right. They're not going to help you. They're going to make it worse. They're going to continue to make all of these problems worse because we've been going down this path for 100 years now. That's why we're here in the first place. So we have to retake that moral high ground. And it, it starts with learning how to talk to people with whom we have disagreements. You have to talk to people online in a way that can actually further some type of a conversation. Talk to people in a way that does not just end with the two of you beating the crap out of each other in the parking lot, because that's how most of the conversations take place now. Talk to people online like this is really, really freaking important, because it is. Talk to them like you actually want them to consider your line of thinking and the two of you need to be able to share the same piece of dirt for the rest of your lives without killing each other. Because that's what we've got to do right now. So anyway, that's pretty much the bulk of our presentation that we're going to be giving at the Young Americans for Liberty Conference at the end of September in Detroit. Uh, guys, if you want to follow us on Instagram, go to at Good Morning Liberty on Twitter at Good AM Liberty. Go look us up on Facebook, Good Morning Liberty. Go to our website, goodmorningliberty.us, for tons of great articles on economics and politics. And if you want to get your very own T-shirt that says taxation is theft or bernielies.com or shall not be infringed or a nice little coffee mug that says bernielies.com, then go over to our Etsy shop. It's actually goodmorningliberty.us slash shop. And look at some of that. That's one of the best things you guys can do for us. Share the show. If you guys do all of those things, then we'll be right back here tomorrow. Until then, have a good day and a good morning, Liberty.